What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Letters. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. I write for The Wrap. There you go. Yeah. Taught your work. Trying to get better at that. There's, there's, there's your words in print out yeah. in the world. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a uh, critic. I, I wrote for Slash Film. We still do. I still I write for Slash. I wrote yeah. today for Slash Film and presumably <laughs> and will tomorrow as well. We will continue that process forthwith. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is our letter show here at Critically Acclaimed. You control the conversation and we're very grateful for it. Here's how it works. You send us an email. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And you ask us questions, you ask us to riff on topics, you ask us for our opinions on things, you want to disagree with something we discussed in some one of our uh, podcasts, you have information maybe that could shed light on something we've discussed in one of our podcasts, the floor is yours, whatever you want to talk about or whatever you want us to talk about. And if writing an email isn't enough for you, <laughs> and I thoroughly believe that you are capable of so much in your life, that, that if you want to write an email, cool, but if you want to do more. We've given you the option, and that option is a P.O. box, which stands for post-O-box. Post-O-box? Yes, post-O-box. You can write us to our post office box. It's got a number. Uh, write to the critically acclaimed network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. And uh, wouldn't you know it, we have one of those today. That's right. We do have a letter from one of our listeners. We're very grateful for it. And uh, Whitney, take it away. I, 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 hope, I like to pull the paper out and unfold it like next to the mic. Here it is. Nice. A little bit of ASMR. Yeah, a little, little bit of uh, actual paper to, to let you know that this is not uh, definitely yeah. not a piece of a prop paper. That's uh, really not. This says, Dear Bibbs and not Rockmeister McCool, who must excuse himself. Oh, well, I guess that's it. Should, should I read this uh, and not you? Oh, because this is about uh, Quentin Tarantino. Oh, uh, okay. I, uh, full disclosure, I'm still technically on the payroll mm -hmm. uh, at the New Beverly Cinema, which is owned by Quentin Tarantino. Occasionally, Whitney does mm. still do uh, projection work. That's right. So if you go to the New Beverly Cinema here in Los Angeles, California, it's a repertory theater. Uh, so every once in a while, Whitney will be in the booth, frantically trying to keep everything from being set on fire. Yeah, uh, running a projector uh, in 2022, uh -huh. it's it's like feeding bits of plastic into a 1958 Plymouth Fury. It's yeah. like a really complicated device. Well, because of the New Beverly, and, and uh, kudos to them for mm. it, they're committed to only showing films on celluloid. They mm. don't show digital projections. So uh, there's, uh, there's a pair of 35mm projectors. Mm -hmm. uh, we do what they call reel-to-reel, -reel, which means we switch back and forth every 15 to 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. We also have a 16mm projector. Ooh, when you're feeling fancy. Well, when you're feeling actually really low fi is wow. how you're feeling. Yeah. We do not have a 70mm projector. Yet. It's been floated, but there's not enough room in that booth. Oh. You have to remove something else. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to like add an extension mm -hmm. onto it, like a suburban house that really wants a tool shed. I suppose so. <laughs> yeah, Just maybe add a second theater. Anyway, uh, anyway, this says I recently saw The Hateful Eight on DVD. Hmm. 
I usually enter a Tarantino film with some trepidation, wondering if it's going to be too violent for me, and I always enjoy them. Both The Hateful Eight and Django Unchained, which I have also seen, are westerns. I don't watch many westerns, Mm -hmm. so forgive my ignorance about certain tropes of the genre. Okay. I always thought that for bounty hunters in a western, wanted dead or alive means you bring in the criminal alive, but if you have to kill them in self-defense, you... uh, in defense, you do so and then bring in the corpse and get paid for your trouble. Uh, it's understood that these are dangerous desperados being tracked and sometimes violent things are going to happen, and it's assumed that when a corpse is brought in, the desperado is killed in self-defense. However, in the Tarantino universe, when bounty hunters go after dangerous desperados, they just kill them. Mm. And they kill them from a great distance array, like a sniper, so there's no way it could be considered self-defense. This raises a few questions in my mind. Mm. First of all, supposing that this is true, is this really what the government had in mind? <laughs> was it fun with the government to kill a man in cold blood if he was, quote, wanted dead or alive? If that's the case, the government was carrying out the death penalty on criminals for the crime of cattle wrestling or bank robbery or stagecoach robbery with no trial. Or did the government naively think, oh, you had to kill him, huh? That's too bad. We really want him alive for trial. But uh, so we could find out if he was really guilty of the crime we suspected him of. Too bad you had to kill him in self-defense, of course. Uh, second, there are still bounty hunters today. Are criminals still wanted dead or alive? <laughs> okay. I do not know how to even begin to find out the answers to these questions, and I don't know how you could reasonably expect to know them either, but I hope you would have some thoughts on this. This is Alan signing off. Well, thank you, Alan. Alan, that's a great um, question. And I think th- I can comment on this, because I'm not talking about Tarantino you're not talking. You're talking about the history of it, and also the use of this trope, which yeah. is very, very common, uh, particularly in Westerns, but also a lot of other genre fiction. The idea, and Star Wars has bounty yeah. hunters, for example. So the idea, if you're unfamiliar with a bounty hunter, the idea is someone is wanted, most commonly they because un- they are a fugitive from the law. They're a fugitive, they're known by the law, perhaps they were in police custody at one point and mm-hmm. they escaped. Uh, perhaps uh, they were identified as a bank robber or something. Now, it's, it's as with a lot of things in the law, you're supposed to be innocent until proven mm-hmm. guilty, so theoretically not everyone who has been wanted on a bounty hunter poster was guilty in some way, but regardless... The police can't find them, and if you can, they'll give you a reward. Uh, reward systems are real. Uh, bounty hunters today is my understanding. Dead or alive is not a thing. It's very, very much alive. And the majority of the time, they're people who jumped bail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, these people often work for uh, uh, bail companies. Um, there's uh, One for the Money, starring Katherine Heigl, was about this. Uh, but also the movie Domino, starring Kira Knightley. Neither mm-hmm. of those films, is my understanding, are terribly accurate. But anyway, um, in movies, like many things in the real world, uh, this is used as an excuse to get the action started. Basically, there is a reason why people are hunting down your protagonist or the villain. The reason for them to get out of their house. And so they do. Like, again, it's the start of the movie Unforgiven. Like, Clint Eastwood is trying to live a life, a nonviolent life. And then he finds out that there's, like, a reward for capturing someone who did something really, really terrible. And he go, he leaves his house to do it because he needs the money to take care of his kids. Boom. That's it. That's the whole movie. Well, it's not the whole movie, but the whole setup. Um... So, Wanted Dead or Alive is a common trope. There are movies with that title, for example. There's at least one Bon Jovi song uh, (laughs) that I'm aware of. Because I'm a cowboy on a steel Steel horse horse I ride. ride. Um, But uh, but, but to to your larger point, which is how is Dead or Alive an acceptable thing? And mm -hmm. I think in Westerns, 
they are often relying on this trope because the idea of a Western mostly is that it is taking place on the fringe of what we could consider the civilized world. It's on the frontier. Mm. And it's, oftentimes they're not in places that are even officially a state yet yeah, it's, in it's, historical fiction. There's a reason why it's called the Wild West, yeah. because there's no law and order there yet. That's mm. why the importance of having a sheriff in a one-horse town was important. They were the only thing between... Uh, bandits coming in and running the place over. At least that was uh, the idea yeah. that we see in movies. You know, the, exactly. Yeah. Talking about Western tropes, yeah. this the, is not necessarily accurate to U.S. history. The Western genre is um, often about how when you are away from the expectations of polite or, civil, quote, civilized society, mm-hmm. what is keeping people from being terrible and doing terrible things? And the morality becomes much more important as a code mm-hmm. rather than something we can take for granted because we have all signed a social contract. Uh well, tacitly well, anyway uh, I, I never signed anything you, well, you can't tell me to do nothing well the, the fact that uh, we're not all in prison right now suggests that we're at least attempting not to go out of our way to break that social contract <laughs> um, uh, which is of course com- a lot of bullshit attached to that anyway but I digress when it comes to dead or alive yeah. um the way uh, the way it works in movies is a little bit different from what I know about it from the actual old west and uh, in I've seen some vintage wanted posters and that's the mm-hmm. way it did work uh, criminals had a bounty on their heads and uh, people did go out and find mm-hmm. and hunt them. They were bounty hunters. Uh, bounty hunting, I'm guessing, was not as common a profession <laughs> in real life as we see in the movies. It's, it would be like John uh, Wick out there. Like, yeah, everyone is being hunted by everyone. Exactly. It's as common uh, as it is in the movies. It, well, it's, like, it's like assassins. There's mm-hmm. so many movies and TV shows yeah. about assassins. I'm There's guessing there aren't a around. lot of assassins in the world. If there were, there'd be a lot more dead people. Well, I remember, what was it? Um, I'm trying to remember if I remember correctly. There was that movie, The Matador, where Pierce Brosnan mm. played an assassin, and while he was on vacation, he befriended like a normal guy played by Greg Kinnear. Okay. Uh, it's actually a pretty good movie. Uh, but uh, he, he talks about it, he tells him about his job, because mm. he, he has no one to talk to. It's a very lonely life. And it's it, basically, the idea is, he, you don't work that often. <laughs> <laughs> he works a couple of times a year, okay. and they pay well enough he doesn't have to do much else so it's not like he's killing people every day to make ends meet uh in the westerns uh there's evidently enough bounty to go around yeah uh you'll see on a lot of vintage wanted posters and this is could be me uh getting some apocryphal stories Mm -hmm. but uh Wanted dead or alive, if they're alive, the bounty was bigger. Generally speaking, it's typically in, in, much seen bigger. Movies, yeah. if, if you kill them, then they're worth a lot less. And that's not something yeah. I see in movies a lot. Yeah. Uh, I have seen that so, in movies, but it's not the norm. Mm. Yeah. It's usually just one set price. Yeah. Bounty hunting as a profession is an incredibly dull idea. Mm. Uh, I've, I've seen so many movies that it, it doesn't seem like much of a motivation, and the money can't quite be that good. If yeah. you know you have to do it so often, it feels it like really this... difficult. Yeah, uh, and it doesn't make and and it difficult in a way that the people don't ever seem really good at it. It's like mm-hmm. something always goes wrong when you're a bounty hunter. Yeah, uh, but when it comes to uh, the U.S. government letting. Uh, just vigilantes murder criminals and bring them in. That was permitted. They actually because the that, government, U.S. government's kind of yeah. doesn't have a hard so, line uh, anti did, killing how, people how, policy. How did the government put up with that? The government tacitly approved of that. Yeah, <laughs> the U.S. government isn't so rosy, you see. Now, now here's the deal. Neither of us are historians. There's going to be a lot of right. nuance to this. What we're really talking about is the way that movies tackle this, mm-hmm. and the way that movies tackle bounty hunting is very much like the way movies tackle the way police departments work, which is to say it's super exciting and there's no paperwork. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how it works. Oh, and, uh, and, uh, and the police are always right, unless they're completely evil. Except sometimes they're completely evil, but for the right reasons, so it's fine. Like, there's this ultra-simplification of the way government works, of the way the legal system works, of the way law and order and justice works. Uh, and in the case of Westerns, there's these types of um, storytelling ideas are often... Are, sometimes they're complex, but often they're simplified in order to tell stories in sort of a broader stroke. Mm. Uh, so here's all I will say. Um, I like many of Quentin Tarantino's movies. I like Django Unchained. I didn't care for The Hateful Eight. But what I will say about both of those, mm. do not get your history from either film. Oh, good. Well, goodness, Tarantino uh, is not super duper interested in historical accuracy. He's there's bits of it in there, but he, he's not like it's not like Master and Commander where he's trying to make sure every single thing is 100% up to code. He is trying to tell a pulpy story in both cases, mm-hmm. and if accuracy gets in the way, fuck accuracy. Which is the way a lot of filmmakers work. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's true for many, many things. I, I've, I've taken screenwriting classes where they'll just say, if reality gets in the way of you telling a good story, choose the story. Yeah. yeah. It's, the story is more important to you, the screenwriter, than reality. Yeah. Uh, I can say I've projected both of those movies and I've mm-hmm. seen them both many, many times. Yes. Uh, even The Hateful Eight. Yeah, which is I've, very I've prob- long. probably seen The Hateful Eight more than any other human. <laughs> probably more than Tarantino at this point. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Tarantino has a new baby. Good for him. And a second child. Good for him. Um, that's nice. That's that's all I can say. Okay. <laughs> Something cool. that's in the news I can talk about. Someday you'll project their home movies. Um, well, anyway, thank you for writing in. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we, and again, we're not historical experts, or, and you yeah. acknowledge that as well. But in movies, yeah, these things are yeah. simplified, and they're not necessarily well thought out. But in Westerns, you know, we're dealing with a lot of morality tales and that kind of hardline, black and white, dead mm-hmm. or alive mentality often fits it. So just try to take it with a grain of salt historically and try to enjoy the film if you can. Yeah, uh, and when it comes to finding out more about that kind of thing... Why not try your local library? Yeah, uh, try your yeah, local library. There's, <laughs> get a library card. It is a yeah. superpower. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, let's go to the emails, because that yes. was our only physical letter this week. Uh, yeah. This Here's an email that comes from Boston Dan. Hi, Boston Dan. Hi, Boston Dan. Great name. Uh, I'm it, Pasadena Bibbs. <laughs> I'm, I'm some schmuck <laughs> from the west side. <laughs> West Side Whitney Side. West side. It's not bad, actually. West Side Whitney. It's not bad. Oh, my God. Sounds like a blog. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to the West Side. West Side Whitney. Today we're going to talk about all the great food places on Sato. <laughs> uh, of which all, there are many. All Japanese owned. Um, yeah. Uh, this one is addressed to Wittillium. I guess that's like us after we've been mashed together. So we have to answer uh, simultaneously. No, we don't have to do that. Okay. I've just changed the rules. Uh, as a preface, I consider myself a non-contributor on all things social media or web-based. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, so this is a stretch. I'd probably be relieved if this is never read. Ha ha. Well... Haha, ha, we're reading it anyway. Ha-ha. Um, uh, I've been a longtime listener and fan. My appreciation for your abilities to give candid analyses to TV slash film is both impressive and frustrating. I mm. wish I could unabashedly articulate my thoughts on a particular scene, actor, premise, etc. off cuff. Despite your self deprecative chumming, Whitney, I'm looking at you, which I also do and do well. Uh, you guys are world class heroes and brilliant as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's very kind oh, of you to say. Sure. Thank you. Um, I will take the compliment, but uh, but uh, uh, not willingly. Begrudgingly <laughs> <laughs> accept your but compliment. But thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I won't give my full autobiography, but I've loved movies since the beginning of time. Wow. 
Uh, I've begged Longer my par- I, <laughs> I begged I begged my parents to go to the local and it's in quotes video store <laughs> as I call it to rent Stand by Me, West Side Story, Ferris Bueller, Point Break, Airborne with Seth Green and Jack Black, yes. uh, Angus. Wow, nineties nineties ninety six. That, that was shot out. at my junior high school, like the year I was yeah. there. I dug Angus. I thought it was pretty good. Movie. I haven't seen it yeah. since it came out. I thought that was good. Yeah. Uh, aging myself, I loved Green Day Dookie at the time. Well, shit, still do. <laughs> yeah, that was that was in junior high. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I give myself the creeps. Um, established a first-name basis with Norm, the owner that made recommendations and made sure the selections weren't always from the new releases wall. Mm. Uh, at any rate, given the amazing questions that pass through the We've Got Mail cast, I've always been intimidated to reach out, but here I am. Well, thanks for... Don't, yeah, never be intimidated. Don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated. We're, we're not going to insult you or nothing. Come yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, when, uh, when you both mentioned how shitty Orson Welles as an Irishman was... <laughs> From the lady from Shanghai. Yeah, it's like, uh, his Irish accent's pretty broad, yeah. Yeah, it made me think of how distracting it can be when an actor attempts an accent outside his or her wheelhouse. As a Bostonian, mm. the most obvious example is Jack Nicholson, my favorite actor in The Departed. He yeah. spells it The Departed. <laughs> yeah. Having not seen Orson Welles in that film, I can't imagine what's worse or less believable. I'm not sure Jack knew whether he was supposed to sound like he grew up in Ireland or Southie, a county that doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, Mark Wahlberg, unsurprisingly, delivers the most convincing lines in Martin Sheen's office and suggests to Leo that while leaning on his desk, Hey, asshole, I know what you, uh, and I know what, I know what you are, and I know what you're not. Let me help you with something, blah, blah. Uh... We don't even need to talk about Matt Damon, genius. He doesn't oversell anything, which seems by choice due to the character. It's weird when you think about it, looking mm. back, that the only person to get an Oscar nomination for The Departed mm. was Mark Wahlberg. It was Mark Wahlberg. Cause, Academy cause, Award nominee Mark Wahlberg. Because he's a Boston guy. Yeah. He, he, he knows it. I, know I what get you, it. I know he, what he's good at that movie. Yeah. I can't take that away from him. But when you think uh, about everyone who's in that film. Are you or are you not a knock? Um <laughs> Martin Sheen isn't bad, but next to Mark, he, he's pr- it's pretty clear he's not from here. Leo and Alec Baldwin don't try too hard, and for that reason, it seems less distracting. Patriot Act. Patriot Act is some of Alec Baldwin's best. Yeah, uh, he's bring, funny, yeah. To bring things full, that he has this one line of dialogue where he offers somebody a cigarette and then, like, tells him at the end to go fuck himself. Yeah. It's like, you want a cigarette? No, you don't want a cigarette. Go fuck yourself. Like, it's just this, like, little rant. Yeah, like, br- Martin Scorsese knew what to do with Alec Baldwin. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think everyone did. Yeah. Uh, he, he's he's good when he's directed well. well yeah, he can uh, be. Yeah. He can be. Uh, to bring things full circle, Jack redeems himself by eating a fly off his palm in that amazing scene with Leo, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, oh, but yeah. I digress. Uh, what are your thoughts about the accent tribulations and how important it is to a scene or a movie overall? Just when you thought you were done, while we're in Boston, there's a scene in The Town. Mm. It's a Ben Affleck movie. Yeah, very good movie. Where Jeremy Renner is about to die while leaning against a mailbox and he knows it. He reaches out for a fountain soda cup uh, or lack of, for lack of a better term, and takes a, a sip. Yeah, I really like that choice. He wasn't thirsty, but he wanted to enjoy something before yeah. it was all over. Yeah, I wondered if that was effective because it was a testament to the last cigarette before the lights go out in every war movie ever made. Okay, I'm done. As we mm. say in Boston, I don't care what they say about you. You're all right. See you later. <laughs> really uh, appreciate you guys, Boston Dan. Thanks, Boston um, Dan. Um, is there uh, two things with that? Uh, the Jeremy Renner thing. To make it quick, um, I feel like that's probably uh, uh, a callback to the old parable about the guy trapped between two tigers. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy is uh, hanging off a cliff. And there's a tiger above him that's ready to eat him if he climbs up. Oh, there's a tiger yes. below him that's ready to eat him if he falls. And to his, zen and, calm, yeah. and yeah, or yeah, and then uh, he, and then he looks to his right and he sees like a little bush with some berries on it. Oh. And what does he do? He eats the berries because oh. it solves his problem. 
No, but at least he had the berries. <laughs> uh, and I feel like that's that for Jeremy Renner, which is at mm. least I had the fucking soda. I was like, the, 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 I'm, I'm dying, this is the end of my life, there's there's something mm. I can still do. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, not an little, important thing, but it's something a little like treat. I, I yeah. get to do that. Uh, uh, when it comes to accents, uh, it can be a problem it if can. it's distracting. Yeah. Uh, there is a film uh, that came out just last year called Wild Mountain Time, T H Y M E. That was two years ago now. Oh, it was two years it was ago. Two, right. It was like a year ago this Christmas, um, yeah. In that movie, Christopher Walken <laughs> oh, yeah. plays an Irish person. Christopher Walken does not sound at all like an Irish person to the point where it's distracting. Christopher Walken, I, I like that movie more than most people, but Christopher it's, Walken's actually. It's absurd, actually, that movie. It's absurd, but I think it. it with, I can't explain why I like it without ruining like the ending, which wow. is kind of there's a big twist, which in is that the way, most interesting yeah. part of the film, and I don't want to ruin it for anybody. Mm-hmm. But if we ever, if you ever, if you have seen the film and you ever like yeah, me to talk about it, you can. If you've ask heard the me. buzz, yeah, uh, Christopher Walken's Irish accent in mm-hmm. that movie sounds like he was asked to do an Irish accent on Saturday Night Live <laughs> at the last minute before it's like it's like literally it's like hey we decided to change it so now you're Irish and he's like but it's going on in five minutes and I can't do one it's like oh just try and like that's what he's doing the it whole just he's try, awful yeah. by the way I do an awful Christopher Walken in case you oh, yeah, that, was, that was okay you thought it was okay yeah, it was possible okay it's, it's, well, I can tell who you were doing that's yeah. the most important thing like it's, it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger you can do a bad Arnold Schwarzenegger hmm. but people know you're doing an Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. kind of okay um which is kind of true for accents as well mm. no, there's, there's but there's a, there's the big thing though is that mm. we're living in a very uh we're living in it's a global community now and mm. like there was a time when you could like watch a movie with an accent that you were unfamiliar with and you would assume well, I guess they know what they're talking about and mm. it must be fine and nowadays we're we have media from all over yeah, the I world have... and there's really no excuse to like not know that yeah. that's completely wrong yes I I, I... Sometimes I'll have to ask a friend who is either from a certain country or has been to a certain country to uh, point out the accuracy of a dialect. Sure. Um, in the movie Blood Diamond, another mm. Leonardo DiCaprio movie, oh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. evidently he studied South African accents, like Afrikaans accents, mm-hmm. really closely. Yeah, I heard, to, I heard he did a good job that. in that And uh, yeah. a friend of mine who had, you know dated uh, somebody from South Africa and had uh. been there uh, said that it was just too perfect like uh, every, everything was inflected just right uh-huh. in a way that it didn't sound like colloquial or natural it, it sounded like he, he, he learned perfect diction in class yeah, and there's nothing yeah. like so, natural and, and, about it and in that movie he's playing like this sort of like uh, kind of a criminal type so yeah. it, it didn't quite fit the character even mm. though it was really accurate so mm. there's those kinds of things there are certain uh, actors from the Isles mm-hmm. Scottish, Irish, English actors who are impeccable doing American accents yes Andrew Garfield, you wouldn't know. Yeah, he's, he's, great. he's great with. He yeah, you would never really, know. Really, really wonderful it. American. It helps uh, that America is like really big and spread out, and there's a variety yeah. of different American accents and dialects, mm. and a lot of people move from state to state, and they kind of combine. So I feel like there's a little more wiggle room sometimes I with American. So. I'll, I'll say this: uh, Ewan McGregor has two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does. He really does. Yeah, he's he's actually gotten better over the years. Uh-huh. Uh, if you watch something like Doctor Sleep, he actually sounds like an American, but for the most part, he sounds like Ewan mcgregor trying to sound american yeah uh and for many many years his delightful what state are you from southern accent (laughs) yeah like it it was it was kind of like a highlight of the movie it's kind of adorable yeah like uh, 
it, it's it's the strongest in his movie. I love you, Philip Morris. I actually like, haven't seen that. One. Pleased to meet you. I'm Philip Morris. Well, <laughs> where are you from, Captain Crunch? I don't know. <laughs> You're the Colonel. I, what, what accent? I don't know what he's doing, but I like that he's doing it. Mm. I like his particular American accent. One of my favorite American accents is Hugh Laurie. Uh, if you watch Hugh Laurie's British stuff, he's very British. He's got a very you know. Uh, he played Jeeves, or he yeah, played Worcester. He, he played Jeeves and Worcester. Yeah. No, no, he played. He did play Worcester. Yeah, right. I got Stephen Fry was Jeeves. Yeah, yeah he was, was also Worcester, in Blackadder, yeah. which we talked about not mm-hmm. that long ago. Uh, he, a wonderful British actor. And then he played uh, the, the lead on an American television series called House, which was basically Sherlock Holmes, Holmes House, ha ha ha, but in medicine. And he would solve medical mysteries. And Hugh Laurie's American accent was basically as gravelly as he could possibly make it. Uh-huh. And so it's like he's trying to sound like a tough guy. Uh-huh. And I love it because you can tell... That when Benedict Cumberbatch was asked to do an American accent for Doctor Strange, he's just doing House. Like <laughs> nice. he's just doing House. Uh, the the one like that, that's another like Benedict Cumberbatch is a like he's almost he's like ninety percent of the way there. Like he's not great in August okay. Osage County. Okay, but uh, he's a, he's like he's fine. Uh, uh, it's. It's also a bit of a delight when you get someone like Gerard Butler playing an American because <laughs> he's a Scottish American. <laughs> sure. And like and that's fine, but every once in a while like if you watch Olympus has fallen, every once in a while he'll like he'll just kind of fall into. You can't say the word windows with yeah. an American. He's, like a, he's a Scot, so he's like, I, I need to keep them away from the windows. It's like oh, he like sinks right back in a little bit. Like, but then you'll watch the second film in that series, London has fallen, uh, and there's and a, he's just Scots. Well, there's a one. scene where he's talking to another uh, Scottish actor, and. You can tell because he's next to another Scottish actor, he cannot keep his American accent straight at all. And it sounds like Gerard Butler is talking to himself. Like, it's really funny. Like And, and again, it's not his... I, Gerard Butler can be a really good actor with given the right material. Sometimes he's great they, in Coriolanus. He's great like, he's in Coriolanus. Like, Holy good shit. in Coriolanus. Like, if that was the only thing anyone knew him from, you'd think he was one of the best actors in the world. And, like, here he's like, okay, he's not, he's not an accent guy. Okay, fair enough. Not a lot of people are. No, not everybody's street. No, that's true. Streep is is usually very, very good. Uh, One of the most uh, uh, famous examples of someone not being able to do an accent and just making it up and everyone praising it Hmm. was in the movie Captain's Courageous, where Spencer Tracy played a Portuguese guy. I don't know what the fuck accent he's doing, and no one does. No one, he doesn't sound at right. It's a great performance. He's doing a great character, but... At no point is he convincing. And what was the John Wayne a, movie where he was a, where he was a a, a a crewman on a ship and he was supposed to be from like Denmark or something? Oh, I forgot. That John that Ford movie, I think, wasn't it? I, it was. I don't remember. Like yeah. 1940 or whatever. It's mm. the, John Wayne also not great at accents. Uh, no, no, no. no. Uh, uh, oh, I, John I was, Voight in Anaconda. I was going to bring up John Voight. In Anaconda. Oh, I, I don't know what he's doing. You can go online and uh, they're they're like YouTube videos yeah. from like Wired magazine and that kind of or Paste yeah. uh, where they hire experts to. To analyze things that happen in mm. movies, and they have linguistics experts who yep. can actually like point to like they're Henry Higgins. They can point to like where specifically in a country yeah. a particular dialect comes from, and uh, they played a clip of John Voight in Anaconda, who's supposed to be <laughs> Uruguayan, I think, uh, Paraguayan, Paraguayan, in Paraguay, movie. Yeah. and uh, and like he looks at a, a clip, and we see that the linguist's face is like. I, I don't know what that is. I don't know what he's doing. That's, <laughs> that's like, nothing. This is just, this is not from any country. He's just saying stuff weird. Like, yeah. that's all he's... It's amazing. He's from France, Russia, Brazil. Like, I don't know yeah, where he's from. It's, it's astounding. Uh, but again, some people don't know. And mm-hmm. they if you don't know, you're not distracted by it. 
but nowadays a lot more people know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's I guess that's that basically. It's if you're gonna do an accent, you should try to do it right. You can get. Well, I was <laughs> like gonna you say you can, I was gonna say you can get cassettes. That's how old I am. Wow. Uh, I I actually because uh, I was I was bit by the acting bug when I was in high school. So I was in a couple plays. I went to you were in a uh, coma for three months. College. Oh, a, a coma like <laughs> with a tent over. Re- yeah, reading Ibsen. You know, it's uh, <laughs> the acting bug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give me more Ian Esco. <laughs> Beckett's Endgame. Yeah. Oh, yes. oh, <laughs> Give me more Moliere. Uh, 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 but because I got this acting bug, I'll, you know, my, my mom, who was also a theater kid, said, Oh, we'll get you all these acting, uh, a- acting with accents tapes. Mm, yeah. One of them was Boston. Right. Uh, and one of them was Russian. I don't know why Boston. I think those were the ones that were like on sale at the, mm. the music store. But yeah, I yeah. got these. So I got these little cassettes and they had little booklets about you know, glottal stops and where to hold your tongue and all the rest. Yeah. And I practiced and I wasn't good. Oh, here's another good example: mm. uh, Hunt for Red October, where everyone's trying to do a Russian accent and then Connery's just Scottish. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's just a Scottish Russian. He, he's fine. Yes, my name is Belentnikov. <laughs> like he's he's trying to tone it down a smidge, but it's mm. he's not doing it the Russian accent very well at all. I, I know uh, with um, certain conlangs, that is, constructed languages, mm. uh, actor, when you are inventing a language... Yeah, you got uh, some leeway. An yeah. actor gets to make that up most of the time. Often. Um, I know uh, Zoe Saldana got to make up the, mm. the Navi accent, because that's yeah. an imaginary language. She yeah, she had to do she most wants. of the dialogue in that, yeah. in that accent. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, same with uh, Mila Jovovich in The Fifth Element. She yeah. had to invent this language, so she got to make up her own dialogue. I, I remember reading in, uh, uh, when they were making Buffy the Vampire Slayer, whenever they had a made-up word, mm-hmm. uh, who whichever they had a rule that whichever actor gets to say that word first decides how it's pronounced. Oh, that's pretty funny. They're the ones who decide, like, oh, we have to... Uh, numfar, the terrible. I was going to say it, Numfair. Nope, Numfar now. It's Fuck n- off. It's Numfar. <laughs> yeah. There you go. All right, uh, but uh, when it comes to larger constructed languages, like Klingon, like Klingon which yeah. has like its own lexicon and vocabulary, it took a long time to get one. But yeah, uh, I got uh, one. Uh, well, but you Mark Okrand is the inventor of that language, and he you know wrote books about how these things work. So now there's a wrong way to pronounce Klingon. There is. However, there's also a lot of canonical portrayals of Klingons where they're just saying stuff. Yeah. Because they hadn't actually invented the language and the rules yet. Mm. So they're just saying words from the earlier ones. So mm. anyway, uh, thanks for the question, though. It's a good, it's a good thing to think about. Right. Uh, here's a letter from Anthony. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Uh, this is about Star Hike. Yes. <laughs> Star Hike, if you missed it, uh, is a show that we covered on our recent uh, episode of Cancel Too Soon. Uh, it was a very interesting uh, failed television series that was uh, sort of a... Um, it's a body sci-fi sitcom. Yeah, kind of. Basically, the idea is, what if Star Trek, but uh, the the humans were the bad guys? And then uh, they had all had like this condition where all of a sudden they had like a conscience, but also uh, all of their emotions were incredibly heightened. It's mm. a funny idea. It didn't leave particularly a good show. Anyway. Uh, but this says, uh, I... Greetings, gentlemen. Mm. I write to you with a dark, disturbing confession, which may chill you to your very core. I watched Star Hike back when it first aired in the UK. Wow. Uh, Ah, you were the one. Yes. Um, This is something of a cheat, as I only saw the second episode, called Lucy in the Sky, because uh, Eugene, one of my best friends, appeared in the show back in the days when he was an actor. For your information, he was Captain Rogan. Oh, that's cool. 
Uh, I, too, was a professional actor briefly, and possibly my greatest performance was responding positively when he asked, so what did you think? Oh, God. <laughs> that can be right. The Academy Award goes to you. That uh, can be Sweet rough. lordy, it was awful, but validating to know I'm not alone in this opinion. Yeah, Star Hike is pretty crappy. It's, it's, it's a shabby show. Like, some people threw themselves into it, and some people come across better than others, but it's a shabby show. Uh, on a more serious note, I've been listening to your incredibly insightful and intelligent reviews since the early days of the B-Movies podcast. Wow. It was our first podcast. Uh, I've recently completed my PhD. Oh, Congratulations. Uh, exploring how individuals can sustain dialogue on polarizing political issues despite the pandem- pandemic's best efforts, and your podcast has been a soothing balm during challenging moments. Thank you. You're both fantastically good at what you do. Never stop, never stopping. <laughs> Signed, Anthony. Anthony, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for the compliments. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much. And congratulations again on your PhD. It's interesting when you think about, like, there are people who, I mean, this isn't the most popular podcast in the world by any stretch, but, like, mm. there are people who listen to us and have listened to us for a long time, and they've gone through, like, major life stuff, and every once in a while, we were there. Mm. And that's kind of a big thing to think about if you if you really... Yeah. Um, so congratulations on your, on your PhD, and... Um, Every time I watch a movie or a TV show and there's someone who has, like, one line and you never see that actor again, uh-huh. I think to myself, that person owns a copy of this on DVD. Yeah. And every once in a while, they'll be, like, on a date and they will bring that out. Oh, they don't even need a line. They can yeah. just be, like, visible in the background of a, sh- of yeah. a shot. Or, I'm just uh, saying, but, like, every time... Because I... Technically, I, I was like, uh, I played a dead body in a straight to video horror movie mm. once. Uh, <laughs> it was called Basement Jack. Uh, it was not particularly convincing CGI to make my face look dead, <laughs> but by God, they did. They, I, I basically someone like goes did up they to like, like make you pale or something. No, they made me a little pale, but mostly they said we're going to like chop off part of your face and, and like. Oh, post. okay, all right. And uh, it's it's a low budget fun. film. It, yeah. it looks it, the the gist comes across. It's just it's not going to win an Oscar for it. <laughs> uh, but basically, all I was was uh, the the protagonist was like hitchhiking, and they see a car by the side of the road, and they open the door, but instead of me being alive i'm dead okay and then they pull me out of the car and they're like drag me off to the side of the road and take the car okay uh, they wonderful person near as i can tell you know did the job of dragging me i'm a big guy even then so it was was no small feat and the only thing i'll remember is we had to do it like two or three times and every time my head ended up in a uh, pit of spiders oh no <laughs> it was like a little mound of spiders so Aww. that was not the best part mm-hmm. but my point is this that being aside uh every person who has a even a remotely prominent role in anything Mm. that's cool good for you yeah even even if you weren't great in it even if it didn't yield anything good for you and Mm. we need people to do all those roles so thank uh, you for thank you for your work and uh and I do subscribe to the philosophy that a lot of actors affect that uh, there's there are no small parts there mm-hmm. are just small actors yeah uh, if you have one line if you have no lines mm-hmm. you take that role seriously you deliver it with all your gusto uh, there is an actor I don't know his name uh-huh. who appeared in Muppet Treasure Island okay. he's a butler he's yeah. Fozzie's butler he appears at a door I don't remember this part at all but okay and, and they, they knock on the door and say hey we're here to see the Duke we need a ship I'm sorry, the squire is in Long Nebly for the grout season. He'll return on the feast of Saint Lulu. That, I mean, that's a great line. Yeah. Have, but yeah, this like old guy just really oversold it. It's like, okay, yeah. he was there for that. He knew. <laughs> he knew he was. He was making a meal out of his one line in the movie, and good for him. <laughs> 
It's funny though. Like I remember, I I grew up. I, I did took like a lot of acting classes when I was younger because I didn't have access to like film classes and mm. theater was as close as I could get. And so I studied acting and I knew some actors in those classes, many of whom were just you know young and doing because they were interested. But there was like three or four who were genuinely great actors at a young age. Like, mm. genuinely really, really, really good. I knew a guy in high school who did a Hamlet uh-huh. that could stand with any movie version I've ever seen. Like, he awesome. was legitimately really, really good. And to, he never... Like, he, he didn't... The career didn't take off. Mm. I, 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 don't, I, I know he worked a little bit, but, like, you know, we, we don't see his face on billboards or anything like mm. that. And, it, and I knew people like that in college as well. Like, every single person in my film school was, like, clamoring to work with, like three or four or five of the people in the theater department because they just had it, you know, that it quality. And then they go into the world and every once in a while I'll see them in a movie in a small role, but they they never really took off. And you just realize that talent Hmm. is a lot, but it's opportunity and a lot of luck and who you know sometimes. The the cliche, it's it's, it's not what you, it's not, uh, yeah. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Uh, yeah. get, getting an inside track is definitely going to bring you a, a lot of things. That's why people like, uh, you know, Maya Hawk or Dakota Johnson, you know, they mm. they need they're, the talent to continue doing what they're doing, but that they, the had, fa- the they had famous parents yeah. gave, you know, open doors for them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, you don't get to keep the job unless you yeah. can do it, but having some ins really, really helps. And But even so, my mm. point is this, um, good for your friend for getting a big part on a show wasn't a great show uh, they didn't write it what are you gonna do but you know that it's now we can find it on Tubi isn't that fun yeah it's yeah. out there alright next letter uh, here's a letter from Yuri hello Yuri hi Yuri um, uh, hello Mr. Salt and Lord Pepper Ooh, which one do you want to be I'm Lord Pepper alright <laughs> uh, I'm quite salty <laughs> uh, I wanted to write you guys earlier but I was tangled in my finals so well I hope those are over for you now. Uh, well uh, midsummers, I would hope so yeah uh, the last time I wrote I ask you to recast Martin Scorsese in an updated version of the documentary Personal Journey Through American Movies, oh, yeah. where he talks about American movies that inspired him, influenced uh, the inf- evolution of the craft, and the directors who made them until the late 60s, early 70s. Right. The chosen director can only speak about movies made between the 70s and the year of the director's first feature film, with a little r- wiggle room. After giving it some thought, I thought my choice would be Steven Soderbergh. Mm. I listened to a couple of commentary tracks of his movies and of movies directed by other people. I recommend his commentary track of The Graduate and of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Mike Nichols. Mm. Steven Soderbergh would be good, not perfect substitute for Scorsese's role. The man knows the craft, is Mm -hmm. deeply in love with movies, is witty, and by the few commentary tracks that I listen to, has an interesting point of view that, uh, and knows a lot about the evolution of the medium. I might. He wouldn't be allowed to speak about 90s and 2000s movies, but I couldn't think of... I can't think of one director from the lost 2000s generation that would be a better choice. Um, We uh, quizzed ourselves once, and this was a couple of years ago. Like, what was the most prominent filmmaker to begin their career uh, in the 2000s? And the best I could think of was David Gordon Green. Uh, Mm -hmm. Charlie Kaufman, to a degree, as a director. Sure. Uh, Lynn Ramsey, uh, although technically her first film was 99, so that's a little uh, skirting. and uh, now we can say Jordan Peele. Uh, I think Jordan Peele's a pretty... Uh, Jordan Peele's um, a prominent filmmaker as well. I would mm-hmm. say Ryan Coogler. Okay, uh, yeah. Uh, when, three when movies. Fruitfield Station was like 20, oh, yeah. late 2000s. Tw- that, that was like the, so, yeah. the mid-2000s. Yeah, I would say Ryan Coogler is definitely up yeah. there. Jeez, um, I don't know. Um, I'd have to think about anyway, it. Uh, yeah. but, but continuing. Uh, now for the second part of this email. 
Do you guys have a favorite movie co- movie commentary track or one that you recommend? Oh. I've been hunting them down because I miss those. Sadly, movies and streaming services don't have many bonus features or commentary tracks, and money has been short, so buying physical media is a no-go for me lately. Mm. Uh, if you subscribe to the Criterion channel, they actually have a lot of their better commentary tracks. Yeah, it's not available. It's not uh, everything because like, they, they don't have videos. every movie they've ever had either. But yeah, yeah they, um, they they do. They do have some, and, and bless them for it, because really, it should be pretty easy. It's just another audio track. There's more to this letter, yeah. but uh, th- yeah. th- it changes su- subjects. So um, yeah. I'll say really quick, um, I mean, it, it's kind of a cliche, but Roger Ebert's commentary for Citizen Kane mm-hmm. uh, really just sort of lay- lays it all out there. He also yeah. does a really good commentary track for the film Dark City. I was going to mention yeah, that, yeah. yeah. yeah the Ar- he, Alex Proyas movie. Yeah, if that's him, because him talking about Citizen Kane makes sense. It's a classic movie. Mm-hmm. He can really lay it all out in detail. But Dark City had just come out only like a year or two prior. And Roger Ebert, who is immediately like, this is immediately a classic film. This is his number this one is, film of the like, year. This is as good as Metropolis. Like, yeah, he, he was really, he, really hot on that and, movie. And I respect any uh, film critic who doesn't uh, yield to hyperbolic, hyperbolic language very easily mm. because it and but then they save it for when it counts. Yeah, yeah. it's not about like never being excited about a movie. You want to be excited about a movie, but you need to pick your battles. So if you say like everything is fucking awesome, then well, it really doesn't there, mean much. If everything's when you say awesome, that. then nothing exactly. Awesome. So like if but like on the rare occasion where you see something, it's like I just saw a genuinely incredible motion picture. I think it was one of the best films I've ever seen in my life. First time I watched it, and that's a rare thing. When someone like Ebert says that, you listen. Even if you mm-hmm. don't necessarily agree, and he did that for Dark City as well. Uh, I would say any commentary track that John Carpenter did with Kurt Russell. <laughs> Do uh, they just sort of joke around? They, or? No, they, they tell stories. They bounce off okay. of each other really, really well. It's a fun... It, you, it feels like you're watching the film with them, but they are talking about the process and yeah. everything like that. So, like, Big Trouble with China. I think mm-hmm. they did the thing together. Um, I, those, uh, are de- those are all... Oh, no, I, they definitely did Escape from New York. That's a good one, too. Okay. Uh, yeah. I... I did listen to multiple commentary tracks by a film scholar named Peter Cowie. Mm. Uh, he is a, an Ingmar Bergman expert. Ah. And so he, for the Criterion Collection, he did a lot mm. of commentary tracks for Bergman movies. Yeah. Um, oh, you know what I of... loved? The commentary track for Finding Nemo. Because they didn't just they didn't just do a commentary track. It was a commentary track, mm. but every once in a while when they talked about something that wasn't on screen, like you were talking about like pre-production stuff, mm. they would cut it in. Okay. And then you would see like, and here's like, okay, for example, so there's like a shot in the in Finding Nemo where you see like a whole bunch of boats, and they said like, here's something that you can't really see in the movie. We had to do it just in case we use those angles, but um, all of those boats had a funny name, and then they just showed you real fast, rapid fire, all the boats and their names, mm-hmm. and it's just so it's a commentary track, but just also a little bit of behind the scenes documentary. Absolutely awesome, very illuminating, very good, uh, very good watch. Um, for animated films, just out of curiosity, ones mm. I listened to uh, part of the commentary track for uh, one of the Pokemon movies. <laughs> okay, what was that uh, like? Po- Pokemon movies were made in Japan, but then they were uh, yeah. recut and redubbed uh, for the American market. Yeah, uh, so, so it's kind of like it's, it's it kind was, of like a whole bunch of different cooks in that pot. At that yeah, point. and yeah. Uh, when the show was actually, and this is a funny story that I learned from this commentary track. When the show was first coming out, mm-hmm. uh, like they had to kind of come up. There was a this one company that was coming up with all of the American translated names mm, for the Pokemon. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them kept their Japanese names. Most of them didn't. And uh, uh, the the producer and the voice actors were like, "Oh, well, there's another Pokemon. Uh, we're going to call this one Charmander." 
Okay, and who's yeah. going to do it? Uh, I'll do it. It's probably just one episode. I'm going to do Charmander. Uh, Charmander, Charmander! And uh, it turns out as more episodes started coming in, it's like, oh shit, this thing's like a big part of the show. <laughs> I have to keep on coming in and saying the same, like... So the the actor who played Charmander was like the executive producer of Pokemon. <laughs> he was just stepping <laughs> into the booth once. Dude, that's really interesting. Yeah, so that's cool. Okay. And they tell, but uh, you know, they also understand kids might be like, mm. this is not for the adults watching Pokemon. Mm-hmm. They didn't leave in. They're like cussing and drinking on the Pokemon commentary track. Yeah. So they actually lay it out in pretty uh, clear terms to kids that might be watching. Here's how it works, and here's that's how cool. we got these episodes. And actually spells it out really clearly. That's nice. I like that. Uh, and. To save the kids, you know, patience, it's actually like only the first third of the movie. Yeah, commentary track. yeah, they're exactly like that. That's 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 smart. I and remember some uh, of the voice actors. Trey uh, Parker they, and Matt Stone did that on That's My Bush. They would do commentary mm. tracks, but they only do it for like the first. They did it until they ran out of stuff to say. Yeah, they did that with South Park as well. Yeah, uh, they Trey Parker and Matt Stone and the rest of the cast of uh, Cannibal the Musical legendary uh, commentary <laughs> track. Legendary they, commentary uh, they, track. They stopped before the movie was over, but the conceit was while they were watching the movie, they were drinking. Yeah, and uh, I'm not sure if they were actually were or if it was, it was just part of the gag. But uh-huh. they were they were drinking and talking and. Over the course of the commentary, you'll hear Trey Parker uh-huh. getting more and more drunk, talking about how the horse in the movie was a metaphor for this girl that just dumped him, man. And yeah. he's getting more and more bitter. And they end up like starting slurring their speech. And then at one point in the commentary, there's like, "This sucks, man. Let's just get, let's go out and get more drinks. I don't, I want to, I want to forget about this." And you hear them walk out, and that's the end of the commentary. No, 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 it's not. It's not. Oh, it's not? No, what happens is they're they're list, they're doing the commentary, doing the commentary track, and then you hear something like, "Oh shit." And then the commentary track ends, and the movie's still got like 25 minutes left, uh-huh. and then you're watching, and at that point you're just watching the movie. And if you stick it out, you watch like another 10 minutes or so, mm-hmm. <laughs> the commentary track comes back on, and they're like, we figured out how to get the commentary track back on. But they've been drinking in the interim, so now they're more drunk, mm-hmm. and it ends with them saying they're going to go get drunk, more drunk, and get tacos. Like, it's oh, okay. it's pretty choice. All right, so a little incorrect. It's a, it just remember it's slightly different, but it's fine. Uh, two, two other commentary tracks I want to mention real fast. Uh, one, if you want to hear a commentary track for someone who doesn't love the movie and is actually critical of the movie... Uh, and made the movie. I highly recommend Joel Schumacher's commentary track for Batman and Robin. Which he is actually, just him flagellating himself with a sagebrush. But he, yeah. that's, the, that's the tone a little bit. But it's also him saying, here's what happened behind the scenes. Hmm. Here's how these creative decisions that people didn't like happened. And I didn't say no. Or I thought they were a good idea at the time. And it's kind of interesting to see someone be kind of candid and not just towing hmm. you know, the studio line. Uh, but also, if you want to hear... A decent commentary track. Uh, you can listen to the commentary track for the Shout Factory Brewster's Millions. <laughs> or Very Bad Things. Or Very Bad Things. Uh, the Shout Factory, which puts out uh, some pretty good quality retro Blu-ray releases, oftentimes of uh, cult and genre films of the 80s and 90s and 70s. Um, we we were invited to do a couple of commentary tracks for them. Uh, mm-hmm. One was for the Peter Berg movie Very Bad Things, starring Christian Slater and John Favreau, uh, and that was an interesting one because we kind of had different opinions about the movie, and it led to an interesting conversation. Uh, but uh, the one that we did for Brewster's Millions, a comedy starring Richard Pryor and John Candy, uh, that one was actually pretty cool because we were able to do a lot of research for that one. Like I read the original like novel written in like 1910 or whatever that it was based on. And we watched like other versions of the movie. We were able to compare and contrast. It was um, pretty cool. 
actually. Mm-hmm. So if you want to listen to us do a commentary track, we did two official mm-hmm. ones in addition to yeah. the ones we release on Patreon sometimes. All right, that wasn't the end of this letter. Right? Fair actually, enough. I have some more. Um, I'm going to finish my letter, <laughs> but there are some commentary tracks. Yeah. I'm going to finish my letter with my traditional movie translations, changes done to Bra- uh, in Brazil fun facts. Uh, the movie series The Hangover was translated, If you drink, don't get married. This led to a problem because there is no wedding in the third, but the the title remained, If You Drink, Don't Get Married 3. Uh, fun fact, the Hot Tub Time Machine had its title translated to The Hangover. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's weird. Uh, From Dusk Till Dawn is called A Drink in Hell. Uh, okay, that works. Uh, Ingmar Bergman's persona is called When Two Women Sin. That, that's they, a much that's, more titillating title. Yeah, that's, that's uh, kind of misleading, but okay. Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch is My Hatred Will Be Your Heritage. That's Ooh, a good title. I love that. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China is called Adventures of the Forbidden Neighborhood. Uh, and Airpl- <laughs> Airplane is called Fasten Your Seatbelts, The Pilot is Missing. <laughs> All of that. That's pretty good, actually. Fasten like Your Seatbelts, yeah. colon, The Pilot is Missing. Okay. Uh, now to a way bigger change. You guys often talk about, quote, the illusion of having final cut. A projectionist could change something when he screens the movie and mm-hmm. in foreign markets where the movie may end up being dubbed. Translations create bigger changes. Some American comedies are way funny in their Portuguese dubbed version than the, their original version. Mm. But one movie has a huge difference caused by its dubbing and the movie is Rocky. Huh. Rocky goes to Adrian, and Creed is announced as the winner by split decision. In the original, uh, spoilers on Rocky. Well, it's, uh, it's like a nearly a 50-year-old movie at this point. I'll in the original know. dubbed Brazil, Brazilian version, we hear the announcer saying that the fight ended in a tie. Ah! Since I was born in the 1990s, I wasn't born when the original dubbed version of the movie was the official one, so I heard a bunch of people talking about how they were shocked when they first watched the movie later with the original audio and discovered that he had lost the fight. Interesting. <laughs> Wow. So that maybe, uh, yeah, maybe it was sort of a, a translation of split decision because yeah. that, that's a technical term. Um, yeah, that, make, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Although yeah. sometimes sometimes there are deeper reasons behind that. Yeah, as long as there so. are cultural reasons. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know about from, from Rocky, but right. yeah. Uh, that's it. I hope you and your families are doing well. We are living through dark times, and your podcasts are a ray of sunshine in this hellhole. Sending lots of kisses, hugs, and good vibes to you guys. Sincerely, Yuri. I, was, I remember uh, being very amused when a movie called Iron Monkey was released in America. Iron Monkey is a very good kung fu film uh, about Wang Fei-hung's father. Wang Fei-hung is a character, a real-life character, who was a martial arts master, he was a, a doctor, and he liked to... He had an umbrella. <laughs> That's kind of right. the only consistent thing about him in all of his movies. He's portrayed very, very differently. He's been in like a lot of serious films, he's been in comedies, but he's a real circle figure, and they just kind of dump him into every movie basically many of which are classics many of which are not uh but this one was about his father and he ran into a vigilante called the iron monkey who was stopping corrupt uh government officials from destroying a town when the movie was released in america in theaters which was starting to become a little bit more popular thanks to the success of jackie chan mm-hmm. um they added like a postscript oftentimes they'd add like a like a uh a title card at the beginning to sort of contextualize everything for American audiences who might not know much about the historical period that the film is set in. But here they added a post one mm. where they just said, and this is, and I remember seeing the movie before it came out because there was a pretty good import store near where I was living at the time. Uh-huh. But they added this, and there's just basically, oh, and the Iron Monkey and his girlfriend got married. And I'm like, I don't even think they were dating in the original version. <laughs> um. I, I love those sort of like last minute retcons. Yeah. You know, Poochie died on the way back to his planet, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, uh, 
this is actually a, a piece of Brazilian cinema, uh, Coffin Joe. Oh, yeah. Uh, co- imagine if... Uh, it, it, Coffin Joe is a lot like Elvira, in that Coffin Joe mm. was uh, his persona in on film, but also off, off camera. Mm. He tooled around dressed like an old undertaker, and he wore a top hat and grew his nails really long. And uh, he did, like, legit horror movies, where he just committed all kinds of horrible atrocities and kidnapped people and committed right. acts of cannibalism. And uh, would uh, do these horrible things in a Marquis de Sade sense, sort of defying God to punish him. Yeah, just it's like, very uh, evil. Being our, our, very evil. The, you know, say, saying, you know, you, well, there can't possibly be a God, otherwise I wouldn't be eating your wife in front of you, would I? I mean, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm going to stab your husband, he's going to die. No, no, I need to drink his blood to survive. Yeah, I know, stab, stab. It's like hor- horrendous tales from the crypt kind of stuff. It's yeah. just deliciously evil. And... So evil, and he always got away with it at the end. It's yeah. Like, um, there was one where he actually, like, died and went to hell, but then he came back and continued to do, like, all sorts of horrible atrocities. Right. Even uh, hell cannot contain Coffin yeah. Joe. Yeah, Co- Coffin Joe. Track down the Coffin Joe movies. They I've actually never seen them. Oh, they're really great. Uh, you yeah. can talk about them many times. Yeah, it's um, the opportunity's never arisen. Uh, one, uh, at, at Midnight I'll Take Your Soul was the first one, mm-hmm. and At Midnight I Will Possess Your Corpse. Ah, yes. Uh, those, those are, like, the two great ones. Yeah, he's a night person, that Coffin Joe. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot done in the evening. <laughs> it's not prancing through fields in the, in the summer sun. Uh, <laughs> but uh, at, he got did all of these really horrible things, and then you could tell that the studio like would take the film away from him and try to punish the character in some way. Yeah, like add some, and there, some there was morality a, to it. Yeah, there was a, a, a TV special where at the very end he like had tortured these people, and at the end he was eating their corpses. Like, mm-hmm. and this is, and it's it's hilarious because he's like taking a big rubber foot and he's pretending to eat it. It's like yeah. popping the toes off and pretending to chew it. <laughs> it. Looks really fake. It's it's haunted house silliness. Yeah, and then. Uh, it, it seems as if the studio took like a nail or a pin and tried to scratch lightning bolts into the emulsion on the film strip mm-hmm. to make it look like he was being struck by lightning. Oh yeah, I heard about this. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. and then they cut to an exterior of the house he was in, and oh. they like had painted in flames to make it look like the the house was oh, on fire. God. And then they added a caption saying, uh, "But he angered God so much that uh, <laughs> he was punished yeah. by, by divine power." That's the ticket. <laughs> That's the ticket. Yeah, they, 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 it's like the, the cheapest thing. Did you ever see, I think it was F.W. Murnau did the film The Last to Laugh. Did you ever see that? It was about oh, a, uh, um, a doorman no, at a fancy hotel. No, I haven't seen The Last to Laugh. Oh, great yeah. movie. Silent movie. Amazing movie. Uh, it's about a, a man from a poor neighborhood, but he's a doorman at a fancy hotel. That's his job. Oh. And he gets to wear fancy, fancy uniform. And he's very respectable because he may be poor. But he works for high society. And when he uh, is deemed too old to do that job effectively, to represent the hotel at the front door, he's moved into the bathroom, a position of less glamour and esteem. But he, like, keeps the costume and, like, wears it to work and then changes and comes back because he's trying to convince people he still has some respectability, like his life hasn't been turned upside down and ruined and it's a very very depressing movie it's a great movie mm. but it's a very very depressing movie uh and this is in the silent era and it's a german expressionist film and there were still studio notes oh god and the movie has at some point uh the director was told 
we you have to add a happy ending to this. This is so bleak. <laughs> this is really fucking bleak. Like we can't we can't do this. And so the solution that he did was to give it the most impossibly happy ending you've ever fucking seen so that you would reject it and you would know it was a lie. There's no possible universe in which the final sequence of events and the last laugh where everything ends happily are things that would ever occur in real life. They're just too happy. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fascinating, really. They tried to like try to take that attempt to ruin the story and almost and almost kind of works. It's pretty cool. Anyway, we should move <laughs> on to another letter. All right. Uh, here's a letter from uh, Human. Hello. Uh, hello, Human. H o u m a m. It might be Houtman. I apologize. Okay. Uh, yeah, that, first name. I, I'm not reading it. Uh, dear Biz and Whitney, uh, your most recent episode of All Our Yesterdays, that's our Ooh. Star Trek podcast, included a long digression about retcons and the, the propensity to insert pointless cur- connective tissue that nobody has asked for into long ring franchises. Mm. Whitney put this down to the MCU, and while the tendency does uh, happen quite a lot in Marvel and DC Comics, Bibbs was right to point out that the Marvel movies tend not to do this. In fact, the trend mostly happens in franchises that are venerable enough uh, that those who are currently responsible for them grew up as fans. Yeah. Uh, as with Star Wars, Star Trek, and Doctor Who subsequently being the main culprits. Yes. The pop culture texts we are fans of have flaws and discontinuities, and some of us, for some of us, that is fine. Others, however, have grown up with certain continuity itches that they are mm-hmm. sure need scratching, and once they have the keys to the kingdom, they can do just that. For example, a recent retcon of the Doctor's origins in Doctor Who would be interpreted as an attempt to explain a throwaway visual in-joke from a 1976 Tom Baker story. Look up the Morbius Doctors for more details. Yeah, I fell off. I've, I've read a little bit about how, what happened there. I haven't actually been keeping track of Doctor Who for a couple of seasons, but yeah, I've read a little bit about it. Uh, all I've seen is the gif of mm-hmm. like what, like this brain in a jar with big eye, like poke out eye cameras. Well, that's fun. With the caption saying, I, Morbius, have returned from the grave. <laughs> And that's great because a movie just awesome. came out called Morbius, and it's good okay. fun to use with the movie. I want the sequel to Morbius to be called "I Morbius Have Returned from the Grave." <laughs> that's a great name for a movie. Imagine that on a poster. That'd be fucking amazing. You know what? I'm, you can I'm, call it "I Morbius" for short. No, just it has to be the whole thing. I, I know. I'm just saying, but but too short, and if you must, okay, yeah. I Morbius. I is Morbius. Fine. Anyway, basically the three franchises I mentioned are relatively unique in being old enough that the current shows and films are, in effect, uh, officially sanctioned fan fiction. Mm -hmm. Sometimes this is great. Strange New Worlds, for example. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is not. Superhero comics have been doing this for years, of course, with retcon after retcon, leaving continuity so muddled and incoherent that the publishers appear to have given up trying to make sense of it all. A cautionary tale, perhaps. What was... Mm. uh, I've asked you about this before, but um, what was the... um, the Etch-A-Sketch uh, maneuver mm-hmm. they did in DC Comics. Well, they, they just they've done a of, couple of those, but the biggest right. one was called Crisis on Infinite Earths in the 1980s. Yeah, they just erased all of the extra like well, parallel they, they had had all these different versions of the characters. There was a version from the 40s, a version from the 50s, alternate reality versions. They had picked up, they had purchased the rights to different comic book universes, like the Fawcett comics, that's where Shazam comes from, or uh, the Charleston comics, which is where all the characters who inspired the Watchmen came from. They had the Watchmen for uh, but uh, yeah, they decided that it's just too fucking complicated. No one can jump on board. It's way too much. And so they created a massive, like it was like a 12 issue storyline mm-hmm. that brought all those worlds together to fight for their lives. And at the end, only a certain number of characters survived, but they all existed on the same world. 
and it was all streamlined, <laughs> and they fucked that up too, yeah. and they immediately had to start explaining, wait a minute, why does Superman know this but not? Why does Power Girl exist? How the fuck does any of this happen? And then they had to eventually handle that mm. with something they called hyper time. Oh and it got, it just, it's, it's kind of not worth the effort a lot of the time <laughs> but i will say this is, is that it's in the letter or is there more to it uh, there's more to it okay i'll, I'll finish right. the letter because i've thought about th- these kinds of like fan yeah. copy, um, continuity ideas but. on the subject of strange new worlds mm. uh i do wish i didn't have to wait the better part of a decade to hear you guys discuss it i know it would be uh, breaking the rules but still mm. it may be a special episode of some kind mm. uh Meanwhile, uh, I would also love to hear something more in-depth on Discovery. Fandoms are funny things. I don't always agree with Whitney. I I don't want somebody to agree Mm -hmm. with me all the time. Uh, But his opinion is always put eruditely and persuasively, except when he's talking about Discovery and Picard, at which point he seems to morph into comic book guy from The Simpsons. (laughs) (laughs) Worst Star Trek ever. Uh, For what it's worth, I agree on the latter, though not always on the former, so I'd love to hear more detailed excavation or evisceration of those shows. Uh, One other Star Trek thing. Has anybody ever uttered the word star in a sillier way than the guy who did the promos for Star Trek The Next Generation? Star Trek! How many A's did he think the word contains? In his vernacular, the word star is longer than generation. Star Trek The Next Generation. I think that was Don LaFontaine. It might have been. I I love... uh, I, I try to get clips, so like, next time on Star Trek to put in our uh, shows and I found uh, the one for uh, one of the most notorious episodes of Star Trek ever Shades of Grey Mm. where uh, Riker gets infected by like a space virus and it causes him to have flashbacks to previous episodes Uh, it's a bacteria I don't care anyway (laughs) the, the, the voiceover guy in the promo is trying to make it sound exciting it's like it's infected his brain. Like, in the way he says brain, he adds, like, multiple vowels to it. Yes. It's so fucking great. Next like, really puts some sass on brain. <laughs> next time on Star Trek, the next... Shit, I don't know. Just Klingons and shit. Klingons, Klingons and shit on the next episode. <laughs> and uh, one cast member will die. Briefly. Briefly, and then they'll be back. Yeah. Uh, one other thing, I okay. do wish I would do wish you two would give Doctor Who another chance. Mm. It really does stand up for the most part, uh, though the current Chris Ch- Chib- Chibnall Chibnall era is still more hit and miss than what came before. I, I guess mm-hmm. that's the most that's recent, the, that's right? the Jodie Whittaker era. era. Okay, and then he's um, leaving, and Russell T Davies, who brought the show back with Chris Eccleston and David Tennant, he's, okay. coming, he's coming back actually. Oh, okay, uh, the show is to me what Trek is to Whitney. And when the Batman podcast ending ended, I was really hoping you guys may have replaced it with Doctor Who, the modern oh, Jesus. show. Okay, uh, well, the pilgrimage of watching from sixty three onward would be madness. That would. Also, Matt Smith is one of the best actors to play the role. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite growing up with Tom Baker, Smith is my personal favorite, mm-hmm. and I agree that he should uh, be getting better film roles. Yeah, he's got a terrible agent. Yeah. Uh, well, perhaps, uh, perhaps something's uh, going wrong. I'll perhaps say. he should get eight, uh, Karen Gillan's agent's number. Maybe because Karen Gillan, she she's, she's in, okay. Oh, she's in those Marvel movies. Yeah, she's she's, nebula, uh, she's nebula. Nebula, that's Thanos's right. daughter. Yeah. yeah, just like robot woman. Yeah. Uh, don't get me wrong; I'm not advocating for you guys to take on another long podcasting project, but I do think there's a lot to recommend in, uh, recommend in the Stephen Moffat years. That is series five to ten. Understood. Anyway, forgive the long email. Thank you very much for the hours of happiness uh, your shows have brought me over the last few years. I came across you guys thanks to Alonso Duralde's recommendations on Linoleum Knife, Aww. and it's been my privilege to be a patron of yours ever since. Very best, human. Thank uh, you so thank much. Thank you for writing in. And um, please 
please listen to Linoleum Knife if you aren't already. It's a wonderful yeah. movie podcast. Um, two things that I want to talk about. Um, firstly, uh, Strange New Worlds. I haven't seen the last two episodes of season one. Okay. But I decided to sit... Everyone kept saying how amazing it was, so I started decided to watch it. Just mm. because... Fuck it. What do I need in more except more stuff on my schedule? Um, you know what's fucking awesome? <laughs> Strange New Star World. Trek Strange New World. That's a great show. Yeah, really, I really love well it. They, it uh, is it is immediately shot up my ranks in my favorite Star Treks. Like it's mm. really excellent. They even they they have great serious episodes. They even did a great silly one where everyone got to play dress up. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like they, uh, they, knew, they knew that that's part of the canon and they kept it in there. Uh, did you notice the name of the author of that fantasy novel? Did not. It's the same author that uh, Benjamin Sisko imagined himself as in the <gasps> 1950s episode of Deep Space Nine. Oh, so that, that, was a is cute, cute. that was a cute Easter egg. That is um, cute. Yeah. Um, um, no, it's, this, Strange New Worlds is excellent, and if you're not watching it, you should. Strange New Worlds is comprised mostly of characters that had appeared on the show before. It's Captain yeah. Pike, it's number one, it's uh, Dr. Mbenga. Robert it's, April. Uh, Robert a- uh, Spock. And yeah. yeah, Robert April's in it. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, I feel like they're doing. Oh, they've done a pretty good job of skirting away from shameless fan service stuff. Yeah, it feels like they, it. It feels like even though we know kind of where they're gonna end up, it doesn't feel like all of that's like a a a, a foregone conclusion. It feels mm. like actually everything they're doing now really, really matters and can surprise us yeah, yeah. which is really smartly handling everything oh. and the individual episodes are like even the worst episode I've seen so far is still fine like yeah. there's no like bad <laughs> episode I mean I went through the last two the, but I hear they're good the, the last one uh, like the finale mm-hmm. is like it's a bigger episode and they yeah. unfortunately they kind of lean a lot of people loved it but they lean really really hard on the fan service stuff okay uh, it's essentially a what if episode I know I heard well, my what it is okay. um, um, but uh, uh, as for Discovery and Picard Yes, uh, which I haven't really watched. I saw the pilot which, of Discovery, and then that was it for me. Which you know uh, are the, are the worst shows ever. <laughs> uh, no, I I think the character work is quite bad. Uh-huh. They have grievously misunderstood what makes Star Trek appealing, and uh, I've I've said this before. Star Trek is a workplace show, and yeah. it's you know the characters are important, yes, but how they relate to one another in a work environment as professionals is kind of why we tune into Star Trek. And yeah. both Discovery and Picard don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the characters sh- uh, change uh, ships from time to time. They're going into alternate universes so often that they may never get a chance to see what everyday life is like on this ship. Yeah. Uh, the conceit that the ship can teleport anywhere in the galaxy yeah. kind of takes a lot away of what the spirit of Star Trek is. And it's incredibly violent yeah. uh, in a way that kind of betrays the spirit of Star Trek. And... Uh, not an episode will, will go by where uh, one of the main cast members doesn't murder someone. Yeah. There's a lot of murders on the show. And then they uh, there's a lot of uh, sort of trauma and crying and speeches and coping with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when, okay, th- that's the thing that's supposed to happen in between Star Trek. No. So it, it's taking all of the the worst elements of Star Trek and kind of bunching them all together. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some interesting concepts, but the scripts are clearly being rushed. Mm-hmm. 
the premise of the second season of Discovery was they received these seven signals from all throughout the galaxy. They don't explain how they all arrived on Earth at the same time, because they would clearly have to travel across the galaxy. But never mind, they have a map of the galaxy and seven spots on the whole galaxy uh-huh. where they can just sort of so tell... So it's a scavenger hunt. It's a scavenger hunt. And uh, the idea is there's this, uh, they call it the Red Angel, is appearing in space and uh, doing something with these signals, and it's eventually going to lead to a plot involving this malevolent machine intelligence. Okay. Uh, and the Red Angel is uh, a time travel figure, is actually Michael Burnham's mother. Spoilers! Uh, here, here's the thing. They they clearly set up the season where they're going to like spend a couple episodes investigating each one of these seven signals. They get to three and they forget. <laughs> it's that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. They, they don't really explore it. Uh, they pay lip service. I understand that techno babble is all fictional. It's all made up. Yeah. But in sort of the next generation era, they actually went like talked to uh, technical advisors and yeah. you know, people who understood the way these ships were supposed to operate, even within their fictional universe. Yeah, yeah. They ignore all of that in Discovery and, yeah, and, yeah. and Picard. It's all just like fantasy nonsense at that point. Yeah. So, uh, no, I haven't been enjoying Discovery. I'm sorry uh, to hear I, that. I'm a sucker, so I keep going back and watching it, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, Discovery and, and Picard is even worse when it comes to the writing because they okay. come up with these big story arcs and go for these big emotional moments with characters I don't care about. I could whinge forever, but you in, sure in, can. In brief, that's what I'm going to say. Well, <laughs> too they, late. They, they asked. No, yeah. I know it's just funny. Um, uh, regarding another point you made, which is about how uh, because the shows that have been going on or franchises have been going on for many decades, okay. like now, Star Wars, Star Trek, run, run and Doctor by Who, new generations of people. Yeah, many of whom grew up on the series, and I feel like there's on one hand, yeah, there's this temptation to just do what you might call fan fiction but that's what all fiction is really something it's just so you make wanna, it, you make stuff up if you want to broaden it out to sort of the anxiety yeah. of influence then yeah yeah but I, what i've noticed is at, at the best of times um a, a lot of these people when they're writing stories that are kind of steeped in continuity or answering questions we never thought to ask before a lot of the times they were watching it often as kids mm. And they never forgot that they asked this question or that they were interested in what happened with blank. Uh, a, a comic book author I'm a rather big fan of named Dan Slott, uh, mm-hmm. who has written hundreds of issues of Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, a lot of his like stuff was like when he was a kid, he, he writes about it. Like, when I was a kid, I was like, has there been an issue where Spider-Man did this? He should do this sometime. And he writes a story about it now because he can. Uh, there was a whole storyline going on in uh, Fantastic Four, Right now, which is basically, uh, uh, you know, like the Watchers have this like oath of non-interference. Well, you ever really interrogate why they did that? Well, there's a story about that. Or he wanted to do one where Galactus lands on Earth, but instead of landing in New York like he always does, what if he landed in Latveria and it was Doctor Doom's problem? That's a fun idea. So, I think on one hand. These are people who are often very invested in the stories and have things that excite them about it. They're not always things that excite other people, and sometimes they're a little nerdy because they're steeped into stuff that they watched when they grew up that not everyone watching it now still cares about. Uh, but um, I don't know. Hopefully it comes from a good place. Yeah. Well, uh, and I think Strange New Worlds is, is, is doing that as well, basically. Like, hey... What was it like on Pike's Enterprise? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's I mean, the whole what, premise right what, there. That's what, very what fan service. What kind of captain was Captain yeah. Pike? What, uh, what, when Spock was younger, what, what was that like? What was Uhura like on her first year on a starship? These are fair a, questions a, to Cadet ask. Uhura's on the show. Yeah. Um, what was up with Dr. Mbenko? We only saw I, him like twice. What the hell? 
I think a, a big uh, one of the big ways people are making sort of those they're called like legacy programs now. Yeah, that's that's the term, the popular term now. Okay, uh, is they're being made by not just people who are like fans of it, mm-hmm. but who have watched it a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a tendency, and I see this in, more in Star Wars than anything, mm-hmm. of to watch the 1977 film like a hundred times. Yeah. You've memorized it. Every single line of dialogue is now just as significant as any other line of dialogue. Right. And now, uh, because so many people have done that, and everybody's familiar with every line of dialogue, you can make whole movies based on like a single throwaway line that was just meant to explain something yeah. in one movie. The, the line, for example, in Return of the Jedi, where mm-hmm. uh, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi says, well, you know, Vader kind of killed your dad. Mm-hmm. There's like a huge chunk of Kenobi is, is given to explaining that. Yeah, and it's like, uh, it was just kind of, can we just admit it was kind of a shitty line and move on? Like, uh, no, no, we have to do an yeah, entire series kind of, to justify it we're, now. we're filling it every single tiny, uh, that's what Rogue One was. Kind of, so, yeah. Know, there, there was uh, a single line, it's like, oh, and a lot of people died getting these plans to us, so let's take a really close, well, that just makes it seem important, right? Yeah, bold In Star now. Wars, okay, now we have to pay attention, mm-hmm. we know this was a high stakes thing. We didn't need a movie right. di- literally depicting that. Well, I think part of the problem, the reason why when Star Wars does it, it feels a little different than even when Trek and Doctor Who do it, uh-huh. is because there's actually a lot more Trek and Doctor Doctor Who out there. Yeah. At the very least, stuff that is currently canon. Mm. There are the, the. When Disney took over Star Wars, they decided the only thing that's canon anymore are the theatrically released movies mm. and the CG animated series. The other animated shows don't count anymore. The Ewok movies don't count anymore. And the expansive extended universe stories, comic mm. books, novels, video games, stories that had continued the story of many characters that we know created new characters. Mm filled in backstories like Boba Fett's origin was already covered mm. in those other stories hadn't had been for decades before even well, maybe not decades but had been for many years before George Lucas said no nah, he's a clone now and everyone's like I thought he was a Mandalorian what the f- <laughs> huh like so Star Wars has less material to pull from mm. and as a result it often feels like when star wars is filling in gaps or uh, answering questions that people didn't think were necessarily important to answer before it feels a little bit more like it's straining to do it because mm. it's kind of got to make mountains out of some molehills yeah, at least yeah. once in a while and well, it and really feels it that the, well and that's the big frustration with star wars in particular yeah. as they make a new movie they're just sort of linking everything back to this very limited series of events. Yeah, it makes it feel smaller. Uh, yeah. It makes it feel a lot smaller. You know, you, you go into like a bar scene in the original Star Wars, like there's a lot of weird creatures in this yeah. little uh, bar scene. What a strange, interesting universe. Uh-huh. It would be nice if we could see it someday. Yeah. You know, here we are in 2022 and we're, <laughs> we're still... We're still on Tatooine yeah, most we're, of the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've spent so many time on this one fucking planet. Mandalorian keeps going to Tatooine. Uh, fucking, Obi-Wan's uh, on that planet Obi-Wan too, right? spends yeah. a lot of his time on Tatooine. Fucking uh, uh, Boba Fett spends almost that entire movie, uh, almost that entire series on Tatooine. At the beginning, Star Wars, Luke says, if there's a bright center of the galaxy, you're, you're on the planet it's furthest from. It is supposed to be an uneventful place. It's, it's like the central hub of everything in Star Wars Yeah, now. now it is. Yeah, because everything kind of stemmed from there because, but here's the deal, it was originally because nothing happens there. It's supposed to be that a, was, a backwater kind of place. Exactly. So it's like, like so they're kind of reverse engineered it to the mm. point where 
in an attempt to make certain things in the movies make sense, they've made other things not make sense. Mm. And I feel like the solution for Star Wars, and this is just my take on it, um, would be to do what Star Trek and Doctor Who did, which is make more. Mm. Make new. Make new stuff. Push stuff forward, and then we'll have more stuff to pull from later when you want to revisit. Well, rather than uh, just constantly revisiting the same stuff. What's what's the plan for Star Wars right now? Uh, there, that, more TV. They're going to mm. do um, a couple of different TV shows. Is that show the, the Bad Batch? Is that a show already? That's or? a show. That's a that's an animated show. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, it's already out. That's already out. All right. uh, there was going to be... Um, Oh, what's the name? What's the name of the of the person who directed Wonder Woman? Patty Jenkins. Oh, Patty Jenkins Jenner, yeah. was going to do like a Rogue Squadron movie, which is kind of like Top Gun and Star Wars kind of thing. Right. Uh, Taika Waititi is apparently working on a movie, right. but that's been delayed a little bit. Ryan Johnson was going to be working on a brand new trilogy, but it looks like that's taking a back burner and probably right. isn't going to happen. Uh, and yeah, they're planning on a TV series about Ahsoka Tano, who was Anakin Skywalker's Padawan before he turned evil. But again, we're going back to the same. I, but now, but now it's like her doing new stuff before the new trilogy, mm-hmm. so it's still an interquel. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't know honestly. Yeah, so it's, what, it's a lot of stuff. What's what's the latest? So the earliest point in Star Wars, like in uh-huh. the his, in the history of what we've seen on screen, uh-huh. is uh, the Phantom Menace, right? Is that the earliest point, or is there I anything think... in Star Wars that takes place before the Phantom? I, in t- um, Even in the might, prologue, there might have been some prologue stuff in the Clone Wars, where because uh, there because some I think there's some flashback stuff in there, but uh-huh. uh, I didn't watch all of the Clone Wars. I've, I wasn't super into it. I've seen so the TV. I've only seen I've seen the yeah. movie. There's like 15 movies, but yeah. I've seen them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, and, no. I, I, think, latest... I think I know there's a lot of video games that go back further than that, like extended media. There might be like novels and comics that are in the new oh, I'm continuity. Sure novels. There might yeah. be new movies and uh, novels and comics that are in the new continuity that Disney officially sanctions and said they can pull from. Mm-hmm. But, but I also know they've also contradicted a few of those things already, too. But, but so. as, as far as like general continuity goes. Generally that, speaking, it goes started. about as far back as Phantom Menace right now. And have any of the new shows taken place after uh rise of skywalker to the best of my knowledge no so that's it that's that's the that's a moment yes that's like like a, a, that's three a 25 year period no 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 it's um oh no i guess because like because because from okay from Darth from, Vader from ages into yeah for into about a man he has about a, 25 years or so okay and then he, and then there's about 20 years between the end of uh revenge of the sith and the beginning of a new hope and then there's at least a few years over the course of the new trilogy because mm. people grow up and stuff like that. Yeah. And then there's, again, people got to grow up. So that's another at least 25, 30 years between Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens. And then that new trilogy takes place actually over a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. So probably like another year or two for that. So we're looking at, you know... Like 45 a, years? Oh, minimum. No, I, I would say closer to 60 between right. uh, Phantom Men, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I would say it's at least fifty or sixty years. It seems like we've covered very little ground in that time. Kind of, well, again, we're kind and, of, and we're, we're kind of trying to fill it in. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we got to move on. Mm. Anyway, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everybody for writing in. Mm. We love hearing from you. It means a lot to us. If you would like to write in on a future episode, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, once again, what is our PO box? Uh, send it to the Critically Acclaimed Network, PO Box six four one five six five, Los Angeles, California. 90064. And of course, uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where we have a lot of exclusive shows, including our Star Trek series, where we talk about every single episode of Star Trek 
ever. We just started season three of Star Trek The Next Generation, which means if you sign up today, you've got over 100 hours of podcasts in our back catalog mm. where we cover the original series, the animated series, the first five movies, the first couple seasons of Next Generation, and it's only going to keep going from here. Mm. And, of course, we have other stuff, too. We have commentary tracks. Uh, we're going to do a uh, new podcast series where we look at all of the movies and TV shows in the Step Up franchise because mm-hmm. we like it. Um, we do a podcast called Only the Best. We review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We're about to do another uh, trivia night. Uh, with our patrons it's a lot of fun thank you everybody who signed up you keep our show alive and if you can't do that and you want to help out leave us a review wherever you find us apple Podcasts, spotify whatever it really helps the show find an audience yeah. thank you so much um and of course we're on twitter at critic acclaim i am at william bibiani i'm at whitney seibel and for those of you who are interested salt cat soap is returning very very soon follow us on twitter at salt cat soap to find out how you can join our new Soap of the Month Club and get hand-designed soaps from my partner, M. Lapis da Silva, and myself. There's some really cool stuff. We've been whipping up so much soap, you have no idea right now. It's really exciting. So stick around. New announcement coming to that real, real soon. Mm-hmm. Thank you, everybody, once again. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.